Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 11. In the locker room, Ben Roggenston stood guard by the door while the three of us geared up. Gaela and Susan found a couple of dirty but usable standard-issue exosuits on the rack, which still had a couple hours of power and air. I then spelled Ben Roggenston on lookout, and in a few minutes, all of us were ready. There is elevators to hub, Gaela observed before we left. We could go right up to your ship. I doubt it. They'll almost certainly be locked down, I responded. And that's a really bad place to be if we get spotted. She just nodded then, apparently satisfied with the logic. She was collected now, in the hard, bitten manner of noble space natives, collected and numb. Have either of you been trained with scoots? I asked as we passed the folded vehicles in their rack. Yes, Susan replied. Have been through basic course, Gaela added while gathering up two of the low-mass, accordion-nested tube things. She handed one to her wife. That would make getting these two to the ship easier, but a simple introductory course on the use of an underpowered thruster system like a scoot might not be enough for negotiating a pitched arc from one point to another on a large, rapidly moving structure. Closely following the pylon straight up to Griselda would put us in danger of being smacked by it at a terrific speed once we were under power and free of the upper hull's centripetal force. The tried-and-true method was to arc out away from the station and then back in again, anticipating your target and controlling your thruster burns carefully. But safety in this situation was relative. We'd all need to do some serious and mass-intensive burn-and-break maneuvers in close formation. Left to ourselves, Ben Roggenston and I could have managed this fairly easily. It would be lethal for the refugees, though, should they panic. If one or both had a lead foot or overcompensated somehow, they might just pull off into a wild and unrecoverable orbit around the planet. This was a common accident for the poorly trained, and statistically speaking, made ordinary exostation work the most dangerous in space. So it had to be off, break, carefully, we couldn't afford to fall very far behind the station's orbital trajectory, and then back up to the hull, all the while hoping that no one's reaction tank ran dry in the process. That, too, would be very bad. We were still waiting for the lock to cycle when Ira called back. Sorry to take so long, guys, but you were right, Ejok. They've got about two dozen point-to-point comm devices casting and receiving in there on at least eight different frequencies. It's pretty chaotic. Any word on Carmi and Dell? Yes, they're apparently being held near Dock C on the other side of the hub. I looked at Ben Roggenston quizzically, and he seemed as clueless as I felt. Why would they be in the hub? What's at Dock C? He's Shuttle Bay, Gaela injected for transport to surface. Who's that? Ira asked. We found some people. They've asked for passage and Gasto has agreed. Make ready for two passengers. What? 
It was A. Laredo, of course. Gaston, what is this? Is my decision. Can talk of it later, ja? The other man didn't reply right away, and then simply acknowledged it when he did. Ira, I asked after this, are Carmi and Dell being sent down to Barlow? Have you heard anything? Well, I don't know, he replied, sounding confused and worried. But somebody on the channel mentioned a trial, if my low speak can be trusted. Auto-translate put it at more like a test. Neither sounds like a good thing. Well, they sure don't. Okay, thanks. We'll be on our way back soon. Ejock out. On Lasercom to Benragonston only, I said, We'll take these two back to Griselda, then I'm going to have a look at Doc C. Now, Benragonston will go. As if to add weight to his words, he stepped directly in front of me. Through his faceplate, he looked frightened for the new guy. It was quite touching, but this was no time to be swayed. Look, Sherry will need your help prepping the ship for emergency launch. If I can get them back, we'll have to leave fast. If these clowns have finally pulled a crew together for that gunboat, we're going to need as much of a head start as possible. His eyes were hard and unconvinced. Sharita needs no help. You will take these ones to the ship. So that two of Griselda's owners can get left behind? Stop being the old war hero and just work with me, okay? There was hurt and anger in his eyes then. It hurt me just to say it, but whatever works. When the cycle was complete and the airlock could be cranked open again, we all stepped out into the bright light of the system's primary. Barlow, stark and bright, wobbled slowly in our field of vision as the high docks spun around and around. We spread about ten meters apart from each other for the sake of maneuvering room, then dropped off the side on the chief engineer's count. The station just flew away. There was no sensation of movement once there was nothing to gauge it by, and I hit the all-stop on my suit's forward-facing thruster points immediately. A severe drag started then, which increased sharply for several seconds, until my drop from orbit slowed and then stopped with a final flash of reaction mass. Already, the high dock was off to one side as it progressed along. I pointed myself in what looked like the right direction, little hisses from the scale suit's tiny attitude thrusters audible inside. How it doing? I'm stabilized. I replied, spying Susan to my right, who was wobbling badly, but had managed to check her fall. Indeed, so had her wife, somewhat further off and lower, and they both reported they were ready to climb back up. Ben Roggenston slipped up behind first one and then the other, getting them stable and tethered together. Within a few minutes, they were bundled close and facing the right way. They held their scoots in textbook style after the older man made them shift grips and even rebuckled a strap on Susan's shoulder that had come loose. Then, on his second signal, we all touched our thrusters just a hair. The high dock was fully half a kilometer above us and at least 20 away, but we just moved at a slow, inchworm pace, puffing mass here and there to stay close together. Jacques is not being brave. He's just to scouting, ja? The chief ordered over laser as we moved towards the hub in our docked ship. Yeah, just a quick look. I wouldn't even know how to get inside over there. Take weapon anyway. Cannot be sure. He jetted over easily and with more dexterity than the rest of us combined, then handed back the main piece of the rifle. I still had the rest of it, along with the clip of ape rounds, but I also reached for his tool bag. Just in case? He looked at me with more insight than I cared for and nodded approvingly. 
It took much of an hour to carefully rematch the orbit and velocity of the station and to make a measured approach toward the ship. Most of that was coasting, of course, interspersed with some small, quick firings of our thrusters, but it required care and was wearing. The chief engineer must have sensed my mood because he stopped both his bossing and his friendly cajoling and left me to my thoughts. Additionally, the women needed supervision in their maneuverings, and he rather had his hands full. In time, though, Griselda was looming large, and its tiny engineering lock was lined up for their approach. I decided to peel off at this point so as to slip around the hub and come at Doxy angularly. Looking only, Jacques remembers. I'll be right back, honest. It was the last laser comm exchange I had with him before I was out of sight. The docks were not marked on the exterior side, but since the gunboat was sitting in one of them, the other had to be for shuttle service. There was an airlock between these two berths, obviously used for maintenance on this side of the hub. That would have been the best place for me to get in and take a look around, but if our people were indeed being held right there, then an unknown number of revolutionaries would be nearby guarding them. I was musing on this, floating off to the side, out of direct sight of the observation lounge ports over each bay, when the red and amber warning lights outside the airlock began flashing, indicating that a cycle was now in progress. Someone was coming out. I initially thought I'd been spotted, and that a gang of patriots or amoral goons, same thing in my mind, was about to leap out like a flight of angry bees. Puffing mass with alacrity, I hovered behind an armored extrusion of superior. The Markan sat silently, powered down and darkened, which implied that it didn't have a crew yet. Likely, there were no qualified pilots who were loyal to the cause anywhere in orbit. The revolutionaries could possibly scare up a crew from their resources on the ground, though, so the boat might yet be a concern. Carefully, I reassembled the rifle while that airlock continued its cycle. The ones installed on this station were old and slow. This had had me grinding my teeth before when I was in one, but it was proving convenient now. The Panther rifle was a comfort too, but unlike an old retired warhorse, I didn't think I could hit anything with it in just its oversized pistol formation. There were only five pieces to the thing, including its two ammo inserts and the canted stock, so in just a few moments it was solid, complete, and cradled in my arms. I was tempted right there and then to fire an ape round at the empty berth, you know, just to mess it up and prevent any resupplies or transports to the surface. But Carmi and Dell were in there somewhere, and anyway, this would just force shuttles to use the empty port next to Griselda. Even more rebels would be near us then, and in a higher state of aggression. Sure, I could have waged a one-man war, but with our people still captive and Griselda still docked, it seemed like a stupid thing to do. Nonetheless, I took a shaky bead on the airlock that was just now into its end cycle. Ejock! Aylareta suddenly squawked in my ear, his voice making me jerk my fingers. Luckily, I'd forgotten to press the safety, because the weapon was currently set to fire the ape rounds. What do you want? I demanded angrily. Do you even know what radio silence means? I want an update. His voice was calm, like he was talking to an excitable child or mental patient. This, of course, just pissed me off more. This guy had to pick at me, even now. I'm on the other side of the hub, hiding from a team that's just exiting the station. Quiet from Griselda. 
Lonk. I closed the channel before I screamed something regretful at him, or became so angered that I shot somebody out of hand. Dragging my patients into some kind of order, I studied the group of suited figures that were now stepping out of the lock. There were four, each one bearing a scoot and standard tool bag, but no visible weapons. A maintenance crew, then. The only thing I could imagine they'd need to maintain at that moment was the gunboat, but once again, my flash assumptions proved wrong. They scooted over to the exterior of the empty dock and began to inspect its X-shaped seal. It looked fine from here, but maybe there had been some damage to the interior side from the rioting. If they kept their distance, I was pretty well hidden under the Marcan. Their use of maintenance tools had given me the idea that it might be nice to hinder the gunboat a bit while it was still relatively easy to do so. I looked for an access hatch or compartment of some kind, but saw nothing especially vulnerable to hand tools on the underside of the boat. I drifted aft, rising up behind the main drive thrusters. These pointed out into space, the Marcan having a forward-facing airlock so that it docked nose first. This put me out of direct sight of the workers or any observers in the lounge. The nozzles were lined with a pretty standard thermal transfer laminate that directed waste heat from the propellant mass back into a heat sink where much of it could be recycled as electrical energy. This served the dual purpose of protecting the thruster cones from heat damage and reducing the overall energy costs of running the boat in the first place. If some of that laminate could be peeled off, firing the engines might well cause a hot spot there. This would initiate an emergency shutdown of the drive. Either that or it would melt right through the cone and cause a burn back, a type of accident that was pretty much as damaging as it sounds. I rummaged through the tool bag and came up with a pressure gripper that had a scraping face to one side. The laminate wasn't top-of-the-line stuff, but it was still pretty tough, being composed mostly of carbon in various exotic molecular long chains that formed a superconductive and insulative layer. The best of show in this field of technology was a vapor-deployed coating just a few microns in thickness, but that was the sort of thing Fleet used on its battleships or that could be budgeted for those big corporate superliners. The material on this boat would have just been sprayed on like paint, then magnetically jigged while still wet to align the carbon chains in the desired direction. It was a standard manufacturing technique, and a standard way to remove small amounts of it was through applied abrasion. I made a deep scratch with the gripper until there was a gouge big enough to get the scraper part under. Then I leaned in as much as my limited leverage allowed. This clumsy approach formed a small tear. But ZG is a tricky place to throw your strength around, and I managed to fumble and flip myself over several times before I'd peeled back a decent piece. Only a meter long, maybe, and a few centimeters wide, but even that amount of bare, exposed metal would be enough to cause issues. A glance out and around the cone revealed the maintenance crew piling back into the airlock. Whatever they'd had to do, it certainly wasn't too involved. Or had they simply run out of time? I turned bodily to stare out into open space from inside the cone, and sure enough, a vessel was out there now, maybe only two kilometers off. Aerodynamic in design and maybe 50 meters in length, it could only have been a shuttle. Squat, as such things went, and likely of a dual passenger-slash-cargo-transport design, 
The thing bore the now familiar boxed star image of the revolution on its tall tail fin. Someone had taken the time to formalize the graphic, but it looked a little crooked, implying a hasty application. It also meant that ground facilities were now in the hands of rebel forces. Things in vacuum appear clean and bright, and realer than real in some ways. Despite the distance, the shuttle was perfectly visible in the reflected illumination of the planet. One long wing fairly glowed in the direct light of the system primary. It did a simultaneous roll and yaw, which was fast and clean, like all such computer maneuvers should be. Grace and style are a pleasure to watch anywhere, but in space they are positively poetic. In the previous hours I had seen ugliness and terror, pain and hate. I had seen death, but at that moment I was deeply moved. Human technology had allowed this lovely, ordinary thing to occur, this mundane, purely functional ballet, performed identically and continually across the breadth of settled space. So simple and common as to be nearly invisible, it was a veritable treat to behold. The approach was slow, and I had time to pull my head out of the stars, so to speak, and to hide deeper inside the gunboat's thruster cone. I didn't want to get spotted lurking about by either the shuttle or by traffic control, who would, no doubt, be watching the docking process on cameras. There was no reason for Carmi and Dell to be in Dock C, unless they were going to be hustled onto the shuttle for surface transport. Yet there was no reason to that either, which I could understand. If the revolutionaries were after Griselda, they'd need the command codes, which Carmi could provide. Under duress, certainly, but such duress could be perpetrated on station as easily as on planet. She had the codes in her head, after all, like every captain, and these animals up here had no problem with inflicting pain and fear. Yet the revolutionaries would also need to get inside the ship, which they had to know we'd resist. The only leverage they might have against us were the captives, but unless the call had come to Griselda in just the last few minutes, our kidnapped people weren't being used as bargaining chips. So, there was either a different agenda in play, or there was no agenda at all. I didn't want to risk looking again, but after a few minutes of tense waiting, I could stand it no more. The shuttle was just settling into its berth, opposite the manner of the Marcan, its rounded bow outward like a fat rocket ready to relaunch. It was powering down, expelling excess compressed mass in the time-honored slow-venting method Steam-like vapor flowing out from exposed grills on various points around the vessel's hull. When a pressure equilibrium was achieved in each branch of the drive system, the venting would automatically stop. At the moment, though, a haze of silvery mist surrounded the shuttle, and I knew from experience that station opticals focused on it were currently of limited use. It would last just a few minutes for a vessel of this size, and I flipped out of the cone and keyed my suit's own thrusters without even thinking about it. The space between berths was open, and the motion up here at the hub, relative to the station's spin down at the wheel portion, was slow and easily compensated for. I moved quickly and without incident. There was no way to know if I was actually being observed, of course, but it felt good to do something. The polarizing viewports in the passenger section to the fore were now transparent, with this side of the shuttle in partial shadow, and they streamed illumination from within. I made a beeline for the third oval window back from where the cockpit must have been, and took a chance. 
Sticking my faceplate right up against the viewport, I had a slightly distorted glimpse of a bright, comfortable-looking row of seats with green upholstered cushioning and threadbare carpeting to match. Each seat bore a dedicated storage compartment built into it, both below and above, for the sake of walk-on baggage. Several people were fussing with personal cargo from these compartments. They wore gray uniforms I hadn't yet seen on the news vids or up here at the station, and each wore a box star chest pin. There were rank insignias on all their sleeves. One of them glanced up directly into my eyes and was startled. He called silently to his companions, who crowded close to see. These guys were definitely well-dwellers, based on their clumsy movements in ZG. Guessing they'd have no idea that an extravehicular approach to a venting vessel was against safety regs in every part of space, I pumped my fist suddenly in the manner I'd seen on the vids. As one, they grinned, their enthusiastic shouts of patriotism lost between us. Someone seemed to call from the back then, where the shuttle's passenger exit was located, because they fumbled with their bags, then waved to me with happy smiles as they floated off out of sight. My little fog bank was, by now, dissipating, so I moved down to the ventral side, away from the observation lounge. If discovered, those angry bees would appear to me at last. What was I doing? For the first time since I'd left Ben Roggenston and the ladies, I realized I had no plan at all. From out here, I could do nothing whatsoever to help Carmi and Dell. Unless... I could pull the same delaying trick twice? The drive thrusters were aft and not accessible to me without the strong risk of being seen, but from underneath, there were several closed hatches in evidence. Three of them were clearly for the shuttle's retractable landing gear, and I knew that damage to even one of those would prevent the vessel from setting down. Then again, if the pilot somehow missed that there was a problem, the result could be disastrous. With our people aboard, that was not an option. There was a large central hatch toward the back that looked like a type of cargo door called a belly gate. Any open doors would be automatically flagged, both by the cockpit crew and traffic control, just as soon as the startup sequence began. This was a common cause of those irritatingly frequent code yellows back home in Jarden's system, which required orbital controllers on duty to remain at their posts. A well-known little station rat could still bring his mother some dinner on those shifts, though, and he had often lingered to watch the action. A close inspection revealed no external controls for the sliding hatch, but it obviously opened to the fore when activated. That meant that there was a motor on that side and a locking system on the other. Ben Roggenston's bag included a small jaw tool, which was a mechanical fork-like device with powered hydraulics and a loadable reservoir of tiny polycarbonate shims of various thicknesses. It was designed specifically to pry open stuck seals and valves, or even magnetic locks. A larger tool would have made the job easy, but I was lucky to have even this one. An attempt at the center of the locked side proved too difficult for the small device, so I tried a corner. The jaw tool's digital gauge indicated that a tiny bit of space had been pried open. I slipped a shim into it with a tap of a button, then continued along the length of the seal. Once the first one was in place, the others were simply a matter of diligence, and in two minutes I had the hatch open and clear of its magnetic lock. With effort, I slid it back 
and propped it open with a telescoping strut from the tool bag. This belly gate was undamaged and ready to be resealed, but that wasn't the plan. Now that I could get at the guts of the door from the inside, jamming it open and then disabling it was a distinct possibility. This would delay the shuttle's launch since the revolutionaries would then have to make repairs before it could enter Atmo again, and that would give us time to think of something else. I hadn't looked up for a few minutes, having been engrossed in opening the hatch, but when I did, I got a surprise. A pair of feet from someone working on the port side were hovering just a few meters away. Thank goodness for the silence of Vac, because I shouted. Whoever it was hadn't seen me, or else I'm sure they'd have at least tapped me on the shoulder. I wasn't listening on their suitcom frequencies, so I'd had no idea they'd come back out. If there was one worker, there were certainly more, as exterior maintenance was always performed in teams. I couldn't bowl my way past anyone local to the station the way I had with those uniformed guys in the viewport. My pressure suit alone, radically different in design than anything they had here, would give me away. Not to mention that none of them had ever seen me before. In through the belly gate I went then, because there was nowhere else to go. With a knock to the side of the strut, I pulled it up out of the way, and the gate slid closed. I was in complete blackness then, the cold reflected light of Barlow and the yellowish exterior spotlights in the high dock winking out like shipboard romances. That inopportune thought was far from welcome just then, but I was able to squash it, along with the panic that had set in, and I tapped on my suit floods. The primary cargo hold, likely spacious, was above my head in the main body of the hull. This one was low and elongated. Anchoring straps and various clamping mechanisms were all along the deck and bulkheads. It was otherwise empty. This was a crummy space to have to work in, especially for any ground crew under the pull of gravity. It wasn't even tall enough for a short person to stand comfortably. Likely, they had load bots that could manage it just fine, but I didn't intend to stay long enough to find out. I only needed to cool my heels until the vac monkeys outside had finished their inspection, or whatever it was. So I just sat there, doing nothing. I really hated the thought of calling Griselda and listening to Ailareta's I told you so tone of voice. I talked myself out of it at least ten times before the grown-up in me finally kicked in. I was just about to key the comm when there was a distinct vibration in the ceiling above me, which I felt as I brushed against it. It was steady, mechanical, and building. With no Atmo in the hold, I couldn't actually hear the preliminary wind-up process of the maneuvering thruster system until I touched my helmet to the wall. Oh, this was ridiculous. It was way, way too soon for a return trip. Frantically, I made a ZG dive at the belly gate, outside observers be hanged. The lip of the door's seal was recessed on this side, so the jaw tool had no purchase whatsoever. Instead, I dug at the motor mechanism's bolted hatch with a wrench. I had just exposed the gate's draulic line when I suddenly started drifting backwards. The shuttle was pulling away! Now gaining G's alarmingly, I checked my slide and clawed over to a bulkhead. The cargo restraints were adjustable. I chinned on the suitcom and called out to Griselda as I shortened the straps as best I could and clipped them around me. Injun, is that you? Griselda, do you copy? There was considerable EMR interference off the engines inside the uninsulated compartment, 
and Ayla Rada came through in staticky bursts. Come again? Ejon, where are you? Get back here now! I'm on the shuttle! Paz, can you read me? Ejon, are you alright? And then the static took over completely as the transport's main thrusters kicked in. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you.